Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the Shortwave Radio and the Internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcasts at home is quite easy. You just need a Shortwave Radio with the schedule of English language broadcasts or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from France 24 and Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. We'll begin with France 24. First, a one-day strike by women in Iceland over gender inequality, including Prime Minister Katrin Jakobsdottir. There have been many protests across the world against the war in Palestine. The list includes many Arab countries where protests are usually not tolerated. The war is centered in the Gaza Strip, but many Israeli settlers and police have joined in attacking Palestinians and destroying their properties in the West Bank. France 24 has a program called Perspective. This week it was an interview with Sari Bashi, Human Rights Director of Human Rights Watch. She talks about the death tolls of infants in the Gaza Strip, the impossibility of the demand that the Palestinians in the north head south, and that the horrific war crimes by Hamas do not justify Israeli war crimes. Sari also points out that preventing food and fuel deliveries is collective punishment and that deliveries would be supervised by the United Nations. Then a business report on the benefits the arms manufacturers have reaped from the wars and the threats of wars spreading across the planet. France 24. In Iceland, where tens of thousands of women, uh, of women are planning uh, a walkout today uh, in protest at uh, gender inequality in the country. Tell us more. Yeah, as you say, Hexi, tens of thousands of women in Iceland will refuse to work today, as we can see in the Iceland Monitor, and that includes the country's Prime Minister, Katrin Jakobsdottir. Uh, I don't speak Icelandic, but my Google Translate skills are pretty good, uh, so the headline reads, Katrin Jakobsdottir attracts world attention. The walkout has been called in protest at the gender pay gap, but also uh, gender-based violence. It will mark the first full-day women's strike since 1975. Women and non-binary people have been urged to refuse paid and unpaid work on Tuesday, including household chores, and that will include the Prime Minister as well. The country still isn't completely equal in terms of pay. One of the best in the world, but still not completely equal. So that's why women are taking matters into their own hands. Numerous protests in support of Palestinians uh, worldwide over the weekend. Uh, what do the papers you've been looking at have to say about those? Well, it's the cover of several French papers this morning. Uh, French paper La Croix here uh, headlines today uh, on the, quote, anger of the Arab world. Uh, the paper tells us that the war in Gaza uh, has provoked intense emotions in places like Egypt, Tunisia, Lebanon and Morocco. Now, the case of Egypt, the paper points out, is interesting because the population is massively opposed uh, to forcibly uh, relocating Gazans to the 
neighboring Sinai Peninsula, as has been suggested by some uh, Israeli officials. People quoted in the piece say that it would amount to the liquidation, essentially, of the Palestinian cause. Uh, an editorial in The Guardian, uh, meanwhile, takes a look specifically at the protests in the Arab world and says that they're less about the Palestinian cause and more about their own domestic situations in many of these nations. The editorialist were, were, says that people are angry both at the lack of regional solidarity between numerous uh, countries that have chosen to pursue self-interest rather than pan-Arabism, uh, but more importantly, their anger about the lack of democracy. And in this sense, she says that the shrunken space for civic protests and expression uh, renders Palestinian demonstrations a sanctioned space for channeling frustration. So essentially saying that because protest is typically repressed in these nations, the Palestinian cause is the only way for them to protest uh, in general. Now, the protests also made the front page of the French paper Humanité this morning. Uh, the People's Awakening, they call it, from Washington to London, San Sebastian, Spain to Marseille here in France. Uh, the paper focused on the hundreds of thousands of peaceful protesters uh, marking the awakening of Western public opinion specifically, according to this left-leaning paper. The editorial insists that uh, demanding an end to the, quote, blind pillaging of Gaza does not in any way excuse the horrors perpetrated uh, by Hamas on October 7th. And the editorialist really makes a point of saying that to link the two ideas uh, is, quote, an insult to the most basic form uh, of humanism. The war may be centered in Gaza, but here in the West Bank, Palestinians are suffering consequences as well. After October 7th, the situation became dangerous and frightening for us. Abu Bashar says five days after Hamas's brutal attack on Israel, his village in the West Bank was attacked by Israeli settlers, army and police. They were beaten and handcuffed. After half an hour, they told us, you have one hour to leave. Take all your animals and leave. You can't take anything else, like water, food or cars, only the animals. And we have to leave on foot. Violence in the West Bank has intensified since the Hamas attack. Authorities there say more than 100 Palestinians have been killed by settlers. Property has also been destroyed and several communities forced to evacuate. On Wednesday, U.S. President Joe Biden condemned these retaliatory attacks. The Lebanese French language paper, L'Orient Le Jour, also in its front page today talks about uh, this Al Jazeera journalist. Uh, he's actually the, his name is uh, Wael Al Dadu. He's Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief. He was reporting on an Israeli strike yesterday when he learned that his own family, including his wife and children, uh, some of his children had been killed in that very strike. And uh, the paper quoting him as saying, are they targeting children in these strikes. So the anguish really coming in there. We're going to go straight to our perspective guests now. And I'm joined from uh, Ramallah by Sarah Bashi. She's Human Rights Director of Human Rights Watch. She leads uh, teams in 50 countries working on human rights before joining Human Rights Watch. She also co-founded Gisha, which is a leading Israeli human rights group promoting the right to freedom of movement for Palestinians in Gaza. I want to comment on the inevitability of um, civilian casualties. Uh, so far, more than uh, 2,000 children have been killed in Gaza since this began. Last night alone, 
more than 300 children were killed in Israeli airstrikes. And on average, every day since this began, the Israeli military has killed more than 130 children in Gaza. The reason that's happening is because the Israeli military is dropping explosive weapons in densely populated areas with wide area effects in ways that are predicted to cause tremendous civilian harm. So another way of thinking about this is if you repeatedly drop huge quantities of missiles on densely crowded residential areas, you will kill children. And that is what is happening. Those kinds of explosive weapons in populated areas raise, raise seriously the risk of indiscriminate attacks. Israel did warn people though, didn't it, two weeks ago now to leave the area. So first of all, the Israeli government is bombing all throughout Gaza, in the north and the south. And many of the fatalities took place in the southern Gaza, which is the area to which uh, the Israeli military warned people to leave. But regarding the evacuation order, uh, a week and a half ago, the Israeli military told one million people in northern Gaza to leave. Northern Gaza includes Shifa Hospital, which is the main hospital in Gaza, struggling to treat some of the 16,000 people injured in, in, in the hostilities. Medical patients, ICU uh, patients, people with disabilities, older people cannot evacuate. And other people, some of the people who, who did evacuate are now coming back because, because conditions in the South are so difficult. While it's true that under international law, warring parties are encouraged to warn civilians uh, to leave areas if doing so helps keep them safe. When you warn a million people to leave, but there's no safe place to go and no safe way to get there, that is not an effective warning. It risks being forcible displacement. And I am very worried about the tens or hundreds of thousands of civilians who have remained behind in Gaza, in northern Gaza, either because they cannot or will not leave. The Israeli military has an obligation to continue to treat them as civilians with all the protections that means. What should Israel be doing, do you think? I mean, let's not forget those horrific attacks of October the 7th. It can't just ignore them, can it? The October 7th attacks by Hamas-led gunmen on Israeli civilians were horrific war crimes. It was the worst civilian massacre in Israeli history, including hundreds of people killed, families shot down, families burned down in their homes, and more than 200 people taking, taken hostage. Those acts were such unspeakable war crimes because they targeted civilians. The response cannot be to then target civilians in Gaza. The Israeli government has to immediately do two things to protect civilians in Gaza. It has to stop the collective punishment of civilians by restoring the flow of electricity and water that it stopped on October 7th and allowing fuel to enter via Rafah crossing, but also via its own crossings with Gaza. And it needs to rein in the use of explosive weapons in densely populated areas that is having such a devastating effect on civilians. One war crime against Israeli civilians does not justify another war crime against Palestinian civilians. It's very basic. My, my primary concern about the way the, the hostilities are being conducted is the use, the extensive use of missiles in densely populated areas in ways that significantly risks indiscriminate attacks. If you bomb a, a very crowded civilian, uh, civilian uh, area, whether or not you intend to kill civilians, it is predictable that you will, and that is what is happening. 
UNRWA, the main aid agency in Gaza, says that it will stop operations tonight if it doesn't get more shipments of fuel. The hospitals have already reduced many of the, the, the services they're providing because they don't have the fuel to power the generators. Fuel is, is, is oxygen in a ventilator. Fuel is heat for a child in a, in a neonatal intensive care unit. Fuel is humanitarian. I heard the, the, the quote from President Biden saying the aid is not coming in quickly enough. It's not coming in quickly enough because the U.S. has not told the Israeli government to turn back on the electricity flow that they shut off, to turn back on the drinking water flow that they shut off, and to stop blocking fuel from coming in via Rafah. Beyond that, in previous hostilities, as terrible as they were, the Israeli government found ways to open its own crossings with Gaza to allow more humanitarian aid in. And that's what needs to happen now as well. Israel says there is fuel in Gaza, but the trouble is it's Hamas that controls it. Israel, as a warring party, has a right to inspect the shipments to make sure there's no there's no weapons coming into the shipments, and that's what they're doing at the Rafah crossing. And they can take measures to prevent diversion. The UN has committed to to taking receiving those humanitarian supplies, including the fuel, and using it for their own needs. It is unprecedented for a warring party to say because we have a a, a concern that some aid may be diverted, we are going to wholesale block an item that is necessary for the survival of the civilian population. People in Gaza need fuel to live because the fuel is the water, the fuel is the hospital equipment, and the fuel is the sewage pumping out of the streets so that, so that the, the, the signs we've seen of waterborne diseases do not get worse. How much worse do you think it could get if there is a, a ground invasion? Look, my concern about the ground invasion is, at this point, the treatment of civilians in northern Gaza. The Israeli government, under the laws of war, has an obligation to take measures to protect civilians, whether or not they follow a warning to leave. And many people in northern Gaza cannot leave. My concern is that two nights ago, the Israeli military dropped leaflets on Gaza City telling people that if they stay behind in their homes, they risk being considered complicit in terrorism. That is a very dark indication of how they're going to treat the many people who either cannot or will not leave northern Gaza. Sarah Bashi, thanks very much for being with us on the programme. Uh, Sarah Bashi joining us there. She's uh, programme director at Human Rights Watch. Thanks very much. Well, around the globe, conflicts have escalated into full-blown wars, as we've seen between Israel and Hamas or Russia and Ukraine. Others are slowly simmering, threatening to boil over, whether in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Strait. In all these cases, policymakers are racing to keep funds flowing to their defense sectors. The Biden administration, for instance, has outlined a $105 billion national security package that will lend military and humanitarian assistance to both Israel and Ukraine. Well, Brian Quinn from France 24's business desk joins us now. Hi, Brian. Uh, this uh, increase in violence seems to be benefiting the defense sector. Well, Charles, as we know, a war in the modern age is big business when bombs are falling arms profits are rising, and as the world's number one arms exporter, the U.S. is especially poised to benefit. The annual average for U.S. government-to-government -government military sales is around $65 billion. 
by the end of September this year, that had already hit $90.5 billion. Investors have been pouring money into U.S. defense companies and funds in the week after Hamas's attack on Israel. The iShares U.S. Aerospace and Defense Exchange Traded Fund brought in $7.2 million, while Invesco's similar ETF brought in $48 million. Those funds are already up between 5 and 15 percent uh, since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the industry, especially in the U.S., is uh, working hard to ramp up production. Uh, it is, Charles. Like Europe, the U.S. in recent years uh, has largely shifted its defense industrial base away from the material needed to fight large ground wars. As it bombards Gaza, Israel is seeking interceptor rockets for its Iron Dome air defense system, guided bombs and missiles, tank ammunition and artillery shells. Now, those Iron Dome interceptors are assembled in partnership with RTX, which was formerly Raytheon, Hellfire missiles made by Lockheed Martin. General Dynamics makes 120-millimeter tank rounds. All three of those firms saw their stock prices jump after Hamas's attack, with the S&P Defense Index up a nearly 5%. And can you give us a sense of how defense spending globally has evolved over the years? So Even before this most recent flare-up, global defense spending was rising to Cold War levels, largely due to the war in Ukraine, but also due to a perceived threat from China's growing military prowess. 2022 saw military outlays rise for the eighth straight year, hitting two and a quarter trillion dollars. The U.S. remains by far the world's largest defense spender. Its $877 billion last year represents 39% of the world's total. The $19.2 billion that it sent in military aid to Ukraine amounting to just 2.3% of its total defense budget. Now, at the end of World War II, outgoing U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower warned of the growth of the U.S. military-industrial complex. Similarly, the current rising trend of global arms sales is sparking increased concerns that a world armed to the teeth is one that is actually more likely to get involved in devastating wars. Brian Quinn, thank you very much. Those reports and press review were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. They are also available at most podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or want to support this listener-funded program, contact information is available at outfarpress.com or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Your support helps the weekly production of this show, which is distributed without cost to more than 100 radio stations across the world. Many, many thanks to all those who have supported this show over the decades. We will conclude with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The largest state-run gas company in Ukraine is called Naftogas, and Alexei Chernovshev is the CEO. He has interviewed about the Russian gas that is still being supplied to Europe through pipelines in Ukraine and how he envisions Ukraine will become the energy hub for Europe eventually. In Berlin, there were rallies supporting Israel in the war, with pro-Palestinian marches across the country being banned and broken up by police. UN Secretary General Guterres is facing heavy criticism for remarks he made about the war in Palestine. 
the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations called for Guterres to resign. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Alexei Chernyshov is a former Ukrainian government minister and now CEO of the country's biggest state gas company, Naftogaz. Thank you very much for being with us on DW Business. Can Ukrainians rely on Naftogaz to provide enough gas this winter? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Naftogaz has prepared quite an affordable volume of gas for the next winter. We do have 16 billion cubic meters in the underground storages uh, in Ukraine, which is fairly enough uh, to go through the next winter season. Moreover, we have managed to increase the gas production even during the war. We are something like plus seven of additional gas production, and we keep on producing regardless of the war situation. I think it is very important that this coming winter, Ukraine will and might count on the gas which has been produced in Ukraine. Is the transit of gas from other countries through Ukraine, of course, Russia being one of those countries, and I think our viewers will be surprised to discover, if they don't already know, that Russian gas is still transiting through Ukraine and into the EU, and it's being bought by uh, EU countries. Is that something that's going to continue? Because that contract between Naftogaz and Gazprom is due to expire next year. Do you want to see a stop to that transiting of Russian gas through you know, your territory? Uh, the only reason uh, Ukraine is still transiting Russian gas is to support European Union countries, especially landlocked countries. We do understand uh, the position of the European Union to fully reject and refuse from consumption of Russian gas until 2027. At this very moment, it has not yet happened. You mentioned supporting landlocked countries. Italy is one of the countries that's still getting gas from Russia via the Ukrainian pathway. It will take time for the European Union to make quite a serious steps to stop consuming Russian gas. As it goes for now, doesn't really matter what country exactly consumes Russian gas. The fact it is being consumed by the European Union. And that is the thing we would definitely expect the European Union to work on. We've talked about pipeline gas so far. Liquefied natural gas is also coming from Russia to Europe, more so than it was before the invasion of Ukraine. How do they feel about that? About the transit? Indeed. Well, the, the fact that Europe is buying more LNG from Russia than it was. Well, you know, overall, supporting Russians with buying Russian gas is ridiculous during the war. What sort of a role can Ukraine play in the EU's energy security? Because that's something that's very much in flux at the moment. You might be surprised, but I would say that Ukraine can be a future energy hub for the European Union, a power bank. We all know that Ukraine has a very important and strategic asset, which is the underground gas storage, the biggest, by the way, in Europe, 31 billion cubic meters of capacity that can be used by European countries. Also, Ukraine is third in Europe by the reserves and resources of natural gas. And the more we produce, the better. 
And understanding that the existing pipe allows to bring this resource to European Union, I'm sure that would bring Ukraine to a position of the future energy power bank for the European Union. Okay, Alexei Chernyshov, CEO of Naftogaz. Thank you very much for joining us on T2P Business. And here in Berlin, thousands of people gathered in solidarity with Israel at the Brandenburg Gate on Sunday. Among them were relatives of hostages taken by Hamas during its terror attacks two weeks ago. Meanwhile, several protesters were arrested at pro-Palestinian at a pro-Palestinian march, which authorities had banned for security reasons. In the heart of Germany's capital, thousands of people from the Jewish and wider communities taking a stand against terror and hatred. It was here in Berlin where one of history's darkest chapters, the Holocaust, was orchestrated. Hamas's terror attacks on October 7 in Israel were the deadliest against Jews since then, something many are struggling to come to terms with. I think it's important here in the land of the perpetrators to show what side we're on. I'm very sad about what's happening. Being here is one thing I can do. Apart from that, I feel quite helpless. Protecting Jewish life is something Germany's government says it has a special responsibility to do. Figures show incidents of anti-Semitism have risen since the Hamas attacks. While this demonstration here has gone ahead peacefully, local authorities across Germany have banned many pro-Palestinian demonstrations from taking place at all over fears of incitement to anti-Semitic violence. Nearby, police clash with protesters at an unauthorised pro-Palestinian demonstration, something seen repeatedly in Berlin in recent days. But the bans have led to fierce criticism, many accusing German authorities of censorship and political repression. Some pro-Palestinian demonstrations have gone ahead without incident. As did the Israel Solidarity Rally in Berlin. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres is facing heavy criticism after comments he made at a UN Security Council meeting in New York. The UN chief criticized Israel's bombardment of Gaza and urged an end to what he described as the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. His remarks drew a sharp response from Israel. There were heated exchanges at the UN Security Council meeting in New York. As the war in Gaza rages on, UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres warned that the situation was growing more dire by the hour. He repeated his condemnation of the Hamas terror attacks and reiterated his call for humanitarian ceasefire. It is important to also recognise the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. The relentless bombardment of Gaza by Israeli forces, the level of civilian casualties, and the wholesale destruction of neighborhoods continue to mount and are deeply alarming. Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen responded angrily to the comments. Secretary-General, in what world do you live? Definitely, this is not our world. He later cancelled his meeting with Guterres. Israel's ambassador to the UN went a step further. The UN is failing. A new Mr. Secretary-General have lost 
all morality and impartiality. I think that the Secretary General must resign. Outside UNHQ, relatives of some of the hostages held a rally. They laid pairs of shoes to show solidarity with the hostages. Later, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken asked the Security Council to back a new U.S.-led resolution which called for humanitarian pauses but not a ceasefire. However, Russia said it would veto anything short of a full ceasefire. So with the UN now in deadlock, a diplomatic solution to the crisis seems a very distant prospect. Those reports and interview were from Germany's radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Also available at most podcast sites, as is the shortwave report. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people, like you, to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, find information for online support. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. This shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. For 26 years, the shortwave report has been produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. While I am recuperating from spinal surgery, I am staying in a house that is connected to the grid. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.